Oh, Terry tells me to go. Okay, I see a thumb. Your thumb is completely superfluous, but we still like it because it makes us feel important, both of us. So I'm ready to go? Yes, sir. Okay, well, there we are. I should say right off the bat, we're still on summer schedule. be on it all the way through the summer. Uh, we'll be back on June the 19th, so we'll be every other week. Terry and Dave will testify that I actually do work while they're not here. So. He does work. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. So people don't think I'm just slacking off. But got to go really fast today because I have a mountain to get through, and you'll understand why, I hope. So here we go. June the 5th, 2022, lecture discussion number 175 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis 1 through 3, and Genesis 15. We are actually in Genesis 15 as usual for the late, lately. Anyway, I'm the supposed HTRP, the highly trained religious professional, and I have been presenting an assortment, an assemblage of postulates uh, lately. Uh, Goodell's or Goodell's incompleteness theorem, Bell's inequality, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, Penrose, Lucas, and Hammerhoff's uh, orchestrated objective reduction, uh, the observer effect. Uh, and I've done all of that with this, and I've given you the stated, my stated intention, and that's to solve the two birds mystery of Genesis 15:10, why they are not divided. And, and also, I want to note that in, in our creation, there's this mysteriousness to it. Uh, again, uncertainty, inequality, uh, non-computability, uh, entanglement—all of these different things are in our creation in God's creation so that becomes important we want to uh, want to know why that is and obviously I have been made aware that at, at to this point in this specific endeavor the Genesis 15:10, the, the two birds mystery I, I got a lot of people uh, and I get my calls and my letters and a majority I think probably of the vast internet audience has become slightly skeptical uh, up to this point, they, they're beginning to mutter and murmur and whisper that the beloved HTRP has been floundering around, flopping, <laughs> casting about. These extraneous subjects all in the misguided attempt to arrive at something, anything that might qualify as an answer. That's what they're suspecting out there. They're, they think that I am, uh, I am utilizing the stumbling, wallowing, groping method of, uh, of exposition. And they're shouting in unison, I suspect. Now, what does Goodell's incompleteness have to do with the undivided two birds? That's the question. How do they fit together? They can't possibly fit together. HTRP can't be doing this. It's just a mess. And they, they accuse me, I'm sure, of deflection and misdirection. And they bellow. And they're uh, obviously from afar wanting to get this focused in. Well, today I'm going to attempt to put all of that at rest. I'm not deterred. I'm like like Winston Churchill. Never, never give up. So today is the day when the endeavoring to persevere actually becomes persevering or fulfillment, if you wish. And all the pieces arrive and they join and they form an obvious solution today, maybe. Okay, we'll see. And I know that's pretty bold talk for a cyclopean, cadaverous, follically deprived male. I know that. Okay, I got it. But let me just say, I think I'm going to get it done today. But I got to initiate uh, my rejoinder by re-emphasizing the incredible significance of Goodell. Goodell's incompleteness theorems are ridiculously powerful. 
because Gödel's incompleteness theorems cannot be overstated as to their impact on mathematical logic and philosophy, and therefore theological concerns. He did something that had an impact everywhere. It's amazing. Gödel, to reduce his theorems to a basic level, is stating that or did state his basic theorems are stating that formal mathematic systems are limited. Mathematical axioms are therefore incomplete. That's essentially what he says to boil it down. And to define the terms, an axiom is a self-evident, unquestioned statement of mathematical system accepted as true. So when I say mathematical axiom, I'm talking about something that mathematicians universally accept as a true statement. And Gödel's in theorem states, it says, no, nope. That's not a definition that we can accept. There's no system, Gödel said, that there's no collection of axioms that can prove all truths. And, and when his theorems applied to mathematics was, uh, when, his, when, when his theorems applied to mathematics came out, because he, he intended to imply them or apply them to mathematics. He didn't intend to go into the religious or the theological or the philosophical. He just wanted to go to mathematics. And when he, when he did it in 1931, his intention uh, was, again, to restrict it to mathematics primarily. But it detonated. And it detonated like the, uh, the proverbial spaghetti factory bomb. And it went everywhere. And it's a big mess, or was a big mess. And it declared that all attempts to discover a complete and consistent finite number of mathematical axioms is impossible. It's doomed. It's a certain failure. Your axioms cannot produce truth. Mathematics is therefore incomplete. It's unprovable. And it's undefinable. That's what Goodell said. And when you study incompleteness theory, and something that the church of today is never going to do, I mean, just forget it. It's not going to happen, and that's exactly why we do it here at Cliffside. Because if they're not doing it, then it must be good. When you study it, the vocabulary is daunting. At least it seems incomprehensible. You have axiomatic, you have effective axiomatization, you have undefinability, you have incompleteness, you have completeness, you have consistency, you got provability, you got formal theory, blah, 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 all these things that you have to have some kind of concept of as you read what he, in fact, caused. And the first order of any subject matter, as you know, is to become fluent with the language. Uh, which then requires that you are bludgeoned with it until you go into submission. And that's my plan, as you know. That's what I do. I just keep beating you with it until you finally go, okay, those words are sort of familiar. We may not know what they mean, but we know the words. And so that's the plan, right? Because it's the job of the church. One of the jobs of the church is to ask a certain question. The question over and over again is why? That's what the church is supposed to do. Why is incompleteness theory correct? Why is there undefinability, unprovability in, in incompleteness, non-computability in mathematics? Why does that happen in mathematics? What does this mean for the creation or the universe? How is truth impacted by incompleteness because if you can't prove truth that's your first input i'm sorry that's your first impact you can't prove it it's unprovable 
But how is truth impacted by incompleteness? Does incompleteness exist? Is there really incompleteness? And isn't this fun? Who besides the lovable HTRP thinks this is fun? Let the record show that one person pretended to raise his hand. But but it's just to ingratiate themselves, that's all. It's not really, it's not really fun. It, it, it's exhausting. Is there completeness? If there's incomplete, uncompleteness or incompletion, is there completion? Do I have the negation and do I have the positive? By what mechanical or what mechanism process does completeness occur? If I have completeness, will I ever have completeness? Are we always going to have incompleteness? How does completeness become completeness? If I'm going to have completeness, somehow there's, what, what is the method or the mechanism that causes completeness? How can I know completeness will unfold? It will emerge and happen. How do I know that I will have completeness? Uh, let me repeat that sentence. How can I know I will have completeness? When will completeness manifest if I'm going to get completeness? If completeness is a process subject to time, which I just inferred when I said when will completeness exist, when is a time reference, has anything ever been finished? Has anyone ever finished anything? That's my question. Hopefully those of you in the vast internet audience have noticed now what has risen up here is Genesis 15.8. 15, 18 through 21, John 19, 30. They're entering this discussion. What's John 19, 30? Somebody said at John 19, 30, it's finished. Okay? That's completeness. How does he know it's finished? Is it mathematically finished? In order for him to say it is complete, he has to have certain capabilities, doesn't he? How does he know? I should interject here John 19, 28, John 21, 17, and John 14, 6. Because it is finished and knowing all things and truth fit together. Thus we have this rule. In order to complete something, to finish something, that take that which is incomplete and make it complete. There are three components to that process. You have to know all things. You have to, uh, you have to be the truth. And, uh, and you have to be able to finish it. So knowing all things, proving all things, demands something. And this I'll put on the board again. It demands infinity. And infinity is the Aleph Tav. So if you know that, and hopefully you know that from, from time past, you will, you will be way, way down the road with regard to these questions about Goodall and his incompleteness theorems. Let me repeat it. The, the rule, in order to complete something, to finish something, you have to take that which is incomplete and finish it. That requires knowing all things. That requires knowing the truth. And that requires proving the truth. Knowing all things, proving the truth, demands infinity. The Aleph Tav. So who has ever said in all of history that he is the Aleph Tav? Who has said that? In the infinite one. Who has said that I am infinite? Who has ever said that? The obvious answer is obvious. Revelation 1.8, Revelation 1.11. Christ, Jesus Christ, said that he is the Aleph Tav. 
And Goodell's incompleteness theorem recognized the finite aspect of all mathematical proofs. So let me try a, a different tact with this. In other words, ah. okay, I gotta get rid of those. Reset to one. Mathematical calculations that are intended to prove a mathematical premise, a supposition. Okay, if that take one of those. And the most known, just to veer off here a second, for example, are the proofs of geometry that are generally fewer than 20 steps. You all went through geometry in eighth grade, right? Okay, you know that I have givens and I have statements, and, and I figure out with the givens and the statements whether or not the particular ge geometric premise is correct. For example, uh, uh, transversals through parallel lines create different size angles. Are those are the interior angles equal? Are the exterior angles supplemental? What 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 is whatever the premise may be, uh, that is a geometric proof. Twenty steps typically fewer, and there are statements in, and uh, and they're a two column proof. So you're familiar with those, I hope. In other words, there are also exists, however, mathematical calculations of thousands of statements. So thousands, think of your geometric proof that you did in the eighth grade and you have the statement column and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of statements and givens. Uh, so every proof, every proof, irrespective of its complexity or length, always, and let me say this slowly, no matter what your proof system is, every single proof in mathematics no matter how long it is, its length or its complexity, always every proof has a finite length. In other words, you can have thousands of pages, but I'm going to be able to count every single statement. That means the steps are countable if they're finite. But however, the problem is, is that numbers are not countable, are they? How many numbers are there? Where do they stop? I can count your proof statements and your givens and all of your, all of the processes of your calculations. I can count them. Or I can have a computer count them. Every mathematical calculation, every proof has a finite length. The steps are countable. So consider the implication. That which consists of a finite limit cannot prove that which requires testing for an infinite amount of numbers. I hope that made sense. It's basic logic. In other words, ah, got it. If I have a mathematical proof, I'm going to know that that proof will be finite with respect to how many steps it has. But that's a problem because if the proof only is, if the proof is finite, how can it resolve and prove any numerical value because numbers are uncountable? So we can only, as mathematicians, and I am not one, but we can only, the mathematicians can only surmise, they can only estimate. The, they, what they're doing is looking at probability, exactly what Heisenberg is doing. And Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. They can look at the probabilities of a mathematic construct. So they come up with a proof and they can say, well, it's true for all of the numbers that we have, but we do not have the, all the numbers. And we can never have all the numbers because all the numbers, to contain all the numbers requires what? The Aleph top. 
So we can't prove anything. The sample size, no matter how large it is, is nonetheless limited. It's finite. It, we can never know, never prove the mathematical conjecture or s- supposition to be true because we can never get all of the numbers. That ultimately is the incompleteness theorem. That is why Gödel said all mathematical proofs are incomplete because they have finite steps and they're trying to deal with an infinite numerical value. So we can only prove something is true if the only one who can ever prove if something is true is the Aleph Tav. So that is why he says he's the Aleph Tav. He is the infinite one, and he's the only one that can tell us what is true and what is not true, and there's your big rut row, because that's theology, right? We've gotten from mathematics, that's the implications theologically. If only infinity can determine truth, then the person has to be infinite. And there we get theology. Again, who has ever said that he is the Aleph Trav, or Jesus Christ? And that again is why Melchizedek is Jesus Christ. Melchizedek is likewise defined as the Aleph Tav, Hebrews 7.3. Let me throw in Revelation 3.14 right here. Uh, Revelation 3.14 has got to be in place because of John 14.6, John 1.1-4, 1, 1 Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, and John 3.11. Revelation 3.14, And the angels of the church of the Laodiceans write, Thus, these things say the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. That is what is said at Revelation 3.14 of who? Of Jesus Christ. These are the things say the Amen. He says that he's the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. That's what Christ says about himself. All of those names of Jesus Christ. All of those are names of Jesus Christ. Sorry. He's the Amen. Sometimes called the Truly or the Verily. He's the faithful and true witness. And he's the beginning of the creation of God. Those are his names. At John 3.11, Christ tells Nicodemus in the context of the born again mystery. We'll have the born again mystery on June the 19th again. that, That he, Christ, testifies that what the Elohim, the us, what we, he says, what we, the us, what we know, what we speak, and we know and testify of what we have seen. So he says, I am the witness for what I have seen. But he also puts it in the context of the plural. John 3.12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe me, how will you believe heavenly things? That's what he said to Nicodemus who was the teacher of Israel. So in Revelation 3.14, when Christ reveals his names here, essentially what he's saying, he's declaring that he is the truth. And he says he's the truth because he knows the truth. And he can prove the truth because he's the Aleph Tav, the infinite one. And that is what Kurt Goodell figured out with respect to mathematics. But you see how it explodes into Scripture. And he, he, he can be trusted to testify and speak the truth Christ can because he has seen everything. The creation begins with him, John 1, 1 through 2, and Colossians 1, 15 through 18. So to repeat the earlier question, uh, why is there incompleteness? What causes incompleteness? Is it fallibility? Is it variability? Is it both? 
Is there something else that causes incompleteness? What has caused mathematical incompleteness? Why is there this incompleteness condition? And again, back to Heisenberg. Heisenberg said that there is uncertainty. So I have uncertainty and I have incompleteness. Why? Notice that Christ is an eyewitness. He says, I have seen all things. That makes him in a court of law. What? An eyewitness. So that when you stand before him and he's the judge, correct? Daniel 7, Revelation 21. Yeah. When he, when you say that, that you're judging me, he has seen every single thing. So he has the ability to judge because why? He's out of time. Those statements in, in, in Revelation are just unbelievably expansive. They, again, they, they explode everywhere. Christ is the eyewitness to all things. So when he calls the eyewitness, he's calling himself. Nothing is hidden from him. And he says that again when he talks about Laodicea. Only the eyewitness knows the truth. Only the eyewitness can know the truth. Only the Aleph Tav can prove the truth. And the observer, and he is the observer of all things. So you see, I hope that I'm getting across what is going on. There's this connection, connectivity between the truth and infinity. John 14.6, Jesus Christ says this, I am when he says, I am, what's he saying? Yeah, this, he's, when he says, I am, he's not saying the way we say, I am. When he says, I am, that's a declaration of infinity and deity, right? I am the way. I am is an Exodus 3, 2 through 4, Exodus 3, 14 reference. He is referring you back to Exodus 3, 14 primarily. I am that I am. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what he said. Obviously, these are three names. We, we just think they're just, I don't know what people think they are, but they're, they are names of him. And the order that is there, they're interconnected. The, the three names interconnect. They, they're individually incredible, but they also speak together as, as, with another incredibility that is equally or not Equally astonishing, because I'm talking about infinity. Almost screwed up there again. Drink something. But the three names, interconnected, and here's a shock. The order is absolutely flawless. Duh. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That's his order. The Lord God is speaking and it is perfect. The way is first. So what's the obvious question there? The way to what? What way is he talking about? That's the first question. I submit that Christ is the guarded... I did, I have in the past here recently, that, that Christ is the guarded gate of Matthew seven thirteen through 14 Remember the guarded gate? Uh, Numbers twenty two twenty six. Balaam and the donkey going down the narrow path. That you can't turn left, you can't turn right. But who's in front of them? And that raises a question as to why he guards the way of the gate. What's he doing? How is that connected to fallibility, variability, incompleteness, non-computability, provability, undefinability, all of those abilities. You write, you put ability after something, you get a new word. Like mess. Why is he guarding 
the way to the gate. And earlier I mentioned in passion, passing, passion. I hope that Matthew seven thirteen through fourteen. Uh, I hope that I mentioned this. I hope that Matthew seven thirteen through fourteen and Numbers twenty two twenty six are are tied together in a way you you can't uh, you can't neglect that. So I, again, I, I think I mentioned that. I hope I did. And if I didn't, I just did it. The way in Numbers twenty two twenty six and the way in Matthew seven thirteen through fourteen therefore are both such a way that there that you can't turn to either the right hand or the left. Both of them are the same in that regard. And the donkey, if you remember, laid down and could not retreat and and could only go forward, but wouldn't go forward. Balaam is beating the donkey and the donkey lays down because the, the donkey knew something that Balaam did not know, that in front of Balaam was the angel of the Lord. That's Jesus Christ again. Christ is in front of Balaam. And Christ has a what in his hand? A sword. So Balaam is in tremendous distress, not knowing it. And the doctrinal implications of that are monumental. There's all kinds of doctrinal issues here that are fantastic. Why is there no way to turn to the right or the left? Why is that? Why why do you have to go down the straight path and go down the straight path only? And at the end of the straight path is a guard with a sword. Why is there a guard there and why does he have a sword? Why can't you just go right through the gate? You can't go right through the gate. You have to deal with the guard with the sword. Why? I mentioned that the eternal security doctrine is in that and I'll revisit that in June the 19th in upcoming lectures. For today, Werner Heisenberg and John Bell and Penrose, they were right. They are, they are right. Wave function, I'm sorry, wave function collapse is non-computable. You cannot compute it. They were both right. That's uncertainty. And we, me, you, and us, are not eyewitnesses. We did not see the creation. We didn't see it. We cannot testify or speak about anything, really, that we have not seen. So we should do what? That's right. We should shut up. Be quiet and watch what God does. That's Moses, right? Only the observer of all things can speak to what is true. And Heisenberg realized that we cannot know the location of a single particle in space. Can't know it. Humanity is limited to probabilities. We can say it's probably there, but that's all we can say. It might not be there. We have uncertainty. Quantum tunneling says that there are no zero probabilities. And so, again, we can't know anything for certain. That's the condition of the creation. Why is that the condition of the creation? What causes that? Or is that part of the design? Or is it a combination of both? In other words, oh gosh, that's a half. (laughs) Certainty is impossible in our finite frame of observational reference. We just can't know. Remember the key to the sermon on Mother's Day is mothers don't know. Right? Guess what? We don't know either. Nobody knows. When I define knowing as completeness, 
There's only there's no one with with knowing. We we have speculation or we have supposition. We have hope maybe, but we don't know. And remember how this all got started. Abraham said, "How can I know?" Wow. God said back to him, essentially, you can't know. You can't. You can believe, but you can't know. And, and, and I believe uh, quantum, quantum sciences and philosophy has proven that to be the case. But as an aside, a photon is now considered to be massless. We used to think it was a particle. Now we don't. When I say we, it's a general statement. There's no mass in a proton in modern physics. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle states that of a given body's positioning, the certainty of where it is increases as the mass of the body increases. So the larger the mass of the body, the more certainty I can have with respect to my probability. But I will only have probability. I will always have uncertainty. Humans will always have uncertainty. So humans can't even tell you where something is. We don't know. But the larger the mass, the more certainty or more probability uh, that I will have. And certainty, again, is a relative term, as is uh, uh, uncertainty uh, with respect to the positioning. So the bigger the body, the more certainty, the, the certainty increases. But photons have no mass. Zero mass. So how can I know where a photon is? I don't even know. It, it, it has no mass. Uh, it's impossible to know where something is that has no la- mass for humanity. Okay, where was I? John fourteen six. The way, the truth, the life. Note the definitive article, the H-E, the he in the Greek. It's singularity. There is one way, there's one life, there's one truth. You did that out of order. There's this exclusivity that cannot be dismissed in that statement. I am the way, the truth. The life. No one, therefore, no one comes to the Father except through me, because there is only one one way, one truth, and one source of life, and that's me. And you can't get to the Father unless you go through me. There's no other possibility. No zero probabilities, right? So he operates differently than us. You can't dismiss that exclusivity. Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, is announcing that He is the one way, the one truth, the one life, and therefore the only way, the only truth, the only life. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life is another phrasing of Christ's meaning. And and again, the way is a person, the truth also a person, the life is a person, all are one person. That's what He's saying. It's me. These things are me. They're not abstract. I'm not talking about something. I'm talking about me. That's what he's doing. Most Bibles do not capitalize John 14, 6. They do not capitalize way. They do not capitalize truth. They do not capitalize life. And that is an error. And But some don't make that error. You Certainly the commentators don't. Whenever they quote that scripture, you'll see them all the time capitalize way, truth, and life because they understand that Christ is speaking about himself. And Christ, <coughs> excuse me, Watch the time here. Christ provides commentary to his extraordinary declaration of John 14.6. With that accompanying, no one comes to the Father except by, through me. So there's your exclusivity that people despise. 
especially the other religions, despise it. Most churches will not quote that phrase because of how singular it is. And now we're back to the gate that he's guarding. He is the gate, and he's guarding the gate. He is the gate, he is the door, John 10, 9. Anyone who enters the gate of Christ will be saved. That's what is said in John 10, 9. And that's also said in Joel 2, 32. There is only one gate, and that gate is guarded. And there's one way to the life gate. It's the life gate, it's the gate of life. There's only one way to it. And it's such that none can turn right or left. But then we have, in contrast, the wide gate. Or the death gate, if you want to think of it that way, because that's the way to death. The wide and broad gate is unguarded. Wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, Matthew 7.13. Obviously, if the gate is wide and the path is broad to destruction, what's the question that the church should ask? Don't just tell me something. What should, the, what should the church ask at that point? If the gate is wide and the path is brought to destruction, why? 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 Why is it that way? Is it accommodating the crowd? Is it easy? I start, don't think I'm going into easy believism. Those of you who know me know that I would never do that. There's no such thing as easy believism. A human being to, to believe in Christ Jesus is an act of supernatural power. It's a miracle. No such thing as easy believism out there, but you'll hear it all the time. Why do those who go to the wide gate flow to it, rush to it? It's death. They're rushing to death. It's almost like a stampede. Why is the death gate unguarded? Why does he guard the way to life, but he does not guard the way to death? That is a theological question. The way to death seems to be overflowing. What causes it? Does incompleteness cause it? I am leaving something out of incompleteness. I said, is it fallibility? Is it variability? Is it uncertainty? Is it non-computability? But I'm leaving something out. What is incompleteness when I boil it down? Jesus Christ presents the way to eternal life, the truth of eternal life, and the place of eternal life. That is what he says. I am the way to eternal life. I am the, I am the truth of eternal life, and, I, and this is the place of eternal life, the destination. And that destination, of course, as we know, is the new city of Jerusalem from above, Revelation 21. The lake of fire is the way of the wide gate or the broad gate. That's the second death. said that many times. Let's, let's go back this way. Why are there two trees? So, so far, how, how many times have I brought up the birds? None. And this is about the birds. The whole thing is about the birds. Uh, good. Why are there two? Oh, it's almost out of time. God, God. Why are there two trees? Why are there two gates? Why is there a two-edged sword? Why is there light and darkness? Why are there two witnesses? Why is there a body and spirit or body and soul or body and mind or body and consciousness? Why is there two tablets? Why is there incompleteness? Why is there uncertainty? Why are there two birds in Genesis 15? Yes, I did it. Why did Mary 
bring two birds. Because that doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Is mankind incomplete? What would you say? Just give me your instincts. Yes or no? Raise your hand. Never raise your hand here. But if you did raise your hand, it's possible you might raise your hand. Do you, would you say that mankind is incomplete? We have one tepid answer. The other person's way too smart. <laughs> what is required then to be made complete? One book talks about completeness from incompleteness. Is if mankind, if mankind is incomplete, are angels incomplete? Well, the last one is self-evident. Goodle is right. Completeness. Proving truth, that's a function. What does it take to prove truth? And and that is only an attribute of someone who is the Aleph Tav. Infinity is that which proves truth. I can't say that often enough. When Christ is saying he is infinite, he's also saying in that sentence that he is the infinite one, the Aleph Tav, the confirmer of truth. I am the one that confirms truth. Because why? I speak truth because why? I testify of truth because why? Because I have seen it. He's an eyewitness. Obviously, since Genesis 15.8 concerns the knowing and proving of salvation, because how can I know? How can you prove to me that I am saved? Abraham. And and 15.9 that follows that, God answers that wonderful question with the take me. The take me is fundamentally the response to Genesis 15.8. The 15.9 take me is the response to 15.8. How do you take him? You've got to take me. And then we have the divided animals. And the birds are not divided. And so we know that the animals testify of Christ. And we know that now that Christ is a couple of things that we have to keep in mind that he is the prover of truth truth, because he is the Aleph Tav. So I am saying to you that the two undivided birds have to be speaking about the Aleph Tav. Have to. And therefore the proving of truth, which is how, why they are included. Because he asked, how can I know? How can I be proven? That, how can I know the truth of my salvation? To say it another way, the Aleph Tav, I am the truth, must be somewhere in Genesis 15. It's got to be there. It's too powerful. It cannot be omitted. There's no possibility that the Aleph Tav, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the Aleph Tav. There is no possibility that it's not in Genesis 15. That's too many negatives. Truth is attached to knowing and proving. How can I know? How can you prove I'm saved? What is the truth of my salvation? Well, the only one that can know the truth is the Aleph Tav. That means that 2 Timothy 3.16 is in Genesis 15. And it has to be, right? Because 2 Timothy 3.16 is the greatest of all mysteries. It is the God-man, the mystery of the incarnation that is without controversy. The greatest mysteries. It's got to be in Genesis 15. So where is it? Where is the hypostatic forever? The hypostatic union? The God-man, the Jesus God, Acts 2.32. Where is it? It's got to be there. What is the HDRP saying? Two birds. Not divided. 
And maybe someone remembers that I said the God-man is the culmination of the twos, of all the twos, because it's a two, it's a God-man, right? It's a duality. What's that? Well, gosh, you're getting ahead of me. Don't let her speak. Women are not allowed to speak in church, I think. Is that true? Obviously not. <laughs> and maybe someone out there remembers that I said the God-man is the culmination of the two. Let me repeat it so I can find myself. The pinnacle, the infinite God adding to himself humanity. Infinity adding humanity. How does infinity add humanity? The mystery is revealed in Scripture all over the place that the infinite God added to himself humanity. And it's all over the Old Testament. And it's repeated and repeated and repeated. We have Genesis 3, 8 through 24. We have God walking God walking in the garden. That's Christ walking in the garden, right? We have him doing that. We have Christ presiding over the trial of Adam and Eve, the woman, and Satan. So there he is as judge. That's Daniel 7, uh, ancient of days. So there he is again. We have uh, we have him making the blood coverings or the tunics. Any physical manifestation of the Elohim is God. He is, or is Christ. He's the uh, invisible made visible. He's the visibility of the invisible Godhead. Genesis fourteen eighteen through twenty four. There he is again. The Aleph Tav Melchizedek. Genesis fifteen. More Melchizedek. Melchizedek just stayed there. He didn't leave. He didn't. He wasn't invited to dinner, but he stayed for lunch. And he did all of Genesis 15. Genesis 18, we have that, that dramatic theodicy between Christ and Abraham. Genesis 28, we have the latter. We have wrestling with, uh, with Christ and Jacob. And of course, we've got Exodus 3.2, the angel of the Lord. We have Joshua 5.13. We have Balaam, the commander. Numbers 22, the commander of Joshua 5.13 is also there in Numbers 22. We have Daniel 7, Ancient of Days. I hope I mentioned that. We've got Ezekiel 1, where he's, he's, on the, he's inside the pillar of cloud, sitting on the throne. The point is, yea, a point that we are given glimpses of the God-man mystery, the Christ-adding humanity, the infinite-adding humanity, the non-controversial, greatest of all mysteries, uh, Timothy we have all these glimpses in the Old Testament, and I didn't mention anywhere close to them. And that was cemented again when Christ descended in Genesis 28 and John 3. For he explained all of that to Nicodemus. When I came down, that is, that is this incredible thing that has all these references to Moses lifting up a bronze, a brazen serpent. Ah. <sighs> And that is why the mystery of Mary, the woman, is so important. Because that is Luke 2.19 through 2.25. 2.24, probably. Mary does many somethings. All of them are weird. Okay, not weird. Unusual. Definitely an enigma. Why is she doing these things? That to the common logical system, you would go, this is not right. And at least the least we need to understand why and how all of this happens. We have the Exodus 13 law of the firstborn. Because Christ was the firstborn. He is the firstborn and he was the firstborn with respect to Mary. And, And we have the Levitical 12 ritual after childbirth. And those are both going to fit into Genesis 15. How do I know that? 
Leviticus 12.8 is obvious in one respect because it's identical to Genesis 15.8. Is it? People say, oh, it's not identical. HTRP, you idiot. I'm saying it's identical. Yes, it is identical. Leviticus 12.8 is identical to Genesis 15.8. In other words, there's a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Let me put maybe. There's two birds for sure. Are they two turtle doves, two pigeons, or a turtle and a turtle dove? Which one are they? Luke 2.19. And of course, now you have migratory issues here because when can you use a turtle dove? They migrate. What about those? What about the young pigeons? Do they migrate? Anybody live in a city? Do pigeons migrate? Check your windshield. Luke 2.19 also becomes critical. It says this, but may, but I, well, I screwed it up. But Mary did not marvel. What did she not marvel at? We got Gabriel. We got all this stuff. We got shepherds. We got wise men. Mary did not marvel. She kept and pondered. That's what she did. Kept to herself and pondered it. Why did she do that? If I put you in the position of what Mary experienced, a, a pregnancy that had no impact from any other source except God. Shepherds. How many magi came? Court of Daniel? Thousands. All this stuff. She, she did not marvel. Again, the angelic realm. But for today, Christ was circumcised on the eighth day. Why is circumcision so important to Genesis 15? Why is Christ's circumcision so important to Genesis 15? Because what is the sign of the Abrahamic everlasting covenant of Genesis 15? Well, it's circumcision. So who, whose circumcision should we pay attention to the most? Christ's circumcision. What is circumcision? Does the word division come in circumcision? Separation. Dividing. Just asking for a friend if I had one. Christ was circumcised on the eighth day, Luke 2.21. Genesis 17.12-14. Leviticus 12.1-3. They talk about why he was circumcised on the eighth day. The eighth day would be the eighth millennium. There is no such thing as the eighth millennium because the eighth millennium is what? Infinite. It's eternal. Why would the eternal one be circumcised on the day of eternity? Oh, it just makes sense, wouldn't it? Note that Leviticus 12 is before Leviticus 13. I know, how does he do it? Gosh, this is why people are so thrilled with my expository skills. Where else, wow, do you hear something like that? Leviticus 12 is before Leviticus 13. Hopefully everyone remembers that Leviticus 13 concerns, this is why we covered it, the unclean aspect of leprosy. Leviticus 14 is the two-bird ritual that does what? The two-bird ritual that, uh, uh, that, that announces the cleanliness, I'm sorry, the cleanness of a, of a leper. Leviticus 12, just to throw that in, that's the ritual, ritual post-childbirth. Uh, ritual and it's a two-bird atonement ceremony as well. So I've got all of those and I've got to fit them into Leviticus 15. And again, Leviticus 14, two birds. Mary must abide by the Exodus 13 law and the Le- Leviticus 12 law. Genesis 
17, 12 through 14 is a circumcision. And that, again, is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And don't let that go. The everlasting covenant of Abraham has the circumcision. Again, Christ's circumcision on the eighth day has to be involved here. And the exceedingly great reward is what it is called Genesis 15.1. Genesis 17.13. Genesis 15 is deeply connected to the circumcision of Christ. Did I say that? I hope I did. And we should have expected that and known that. Now, unquestionably, there is a considerable measure of material here uh, to denudate it, and we do not have time because we never have time. And you should be made aware that the theological academics, the guys in the ivory towers in this country, are perplexed with Luke 2, 23, 24, and 2, 27. There's much bickering. The dissension is ubiquitary. That, again, of course, is Mary bringing two birds. And they are standing back throwing punches. So you got to know that. I hope you do. The disagreements mostly center around the question, why was Mary even making this offering? Why is she ceremonially unclean when when she's giving birth to the infinite, sinless Christ? The God-man is sinless. Therefore, the woman would not be be in need of purification, is the argument. The days of purification for a male child were 40, Leviticus 12, 2 through 4. So we got to deal with that. But Romans 5, 12 through 14 and 1 Corinthians 15, 42 do not apply to Christ. He doesn't have any sin. He's absolutely perfect. And the purpose of that purification is that when you give birth to a, a person, that, to a child that is, has a sinful condition, then you have to be purified. And you need two birds or a lamb. The two birds is a poverty element. Is humanity in poverty? Does the Bible describe humanity as in poverty? But again, this is the birth of the infinite God. The mystery of the incarnation. That no one can understand. So if you think you understand the mystery of the incarnation, stop it. You don't. You don't have a clue. You don't know what you don't know because you can't know because you are not infinite. You don't know the truth. You'll never know the truth. What does Paul say? We see dimly. Someday we will know the truth. What's the process that gets us to know the truth? How do you get to know the truth? You have to get the truth from who? From the one that is the truth. Okay, all of that was the beginnings of the mystery of Mary. For today, note that Mary brought the poverty offering of two birds. If she brought one turtle dove or one young pigeon, if we don't know. If she did, if she did bring one turtle dove and one pigeon, in other words, replicate the language, duplicate the language of Genesis 15.9, but we can't be sure of the language of 15.9. But I have the position that she did exactly what Abraham did, whatever that might be. Just so you know, the Hebrew translated as a turtle dove and a young pigeon only occurs in Genesis 15.9. That's the only place it is. And and same for the, the Greek of Luke 2.24. The only place it occurs... With, with respect to Mary is in 2.24 of Luke. That's the only place it's there. One occurrence. The Dead Sea Scrolls. If you want to go to the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is a really good idea, you should always do that. But it says, and a turtle dove, even a nesting for Genesis 15.8 or 15.9. doesn't say a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So what we, we know two birds. I'm saying whatever, the, whatever those birds were, Mary brought the exact same ones that Abraham did. Or that, that, I'm sorry, that Abraham was given so, so there's ambiguity here. There's not, not exactly a transparent translation. Therefore, I, again, I conclude that Abraham's Genesis 15.9 and Luke 2.24 are the same. They're the same thing.
So Luke 2.24 is referring back to Abraham and Genesis 15.9. The sameness yet to be determined. Why it's the same, I don't have time for today. <coughs> now we have the Simeon prophecy that's here. Because what happens after she has him circumcised and brings him to the temple? Who's there? Simeon the prophet. What's he doing? He blesses the child because he's finally going to see the Messiah. Now he, know, now he can die because he was told by the Holy Spirit he wouldn't die until he got to see the Messiah. When he held up the Christ child, what did he see? Do you think he saw a normal looking baby? I don't think so. He knew that's God. How did he know? Shekinah glory, Matthew 17. Christ wink. What happened? What did he do for Simeon? And, and I should say this. Simeon and Anna is 1949 plus 84, which is 2033. Should I put that on the board? Okay. 1949 uh, plus 84 equals 2033. Again, who in the world, where do you get this? You've got to pay for this. I mean, You've got to be kidding. How is it? That's wonderful math. Do it yourself. Use your phones. Why is 1949 and 84 2033? Because it is. What happened in 1949? That's when Israel was a country, assigned a country status. What's 84? That's the age of Anna the prophet. You add them together, you get 2033. What's so important about 2033? Well, it could be 2034, if Bishop Usher is correct. 2034 and 2033 would be exactly two days from when Christ entered Jerusalem. If we're right about Bishop Usher, and we're probably not, you won't know, you won't know the day. Well, if you don't know the year exactly, and you don't know because you can't know, because you can't see, you're not infinite. You all you can do is hope, believe. But you can see where Simeon and Anna show up here. It's really, really, very cool. I think, but we'll get to that later. Uh, but you have the Simeon prophecy here that's connected to Genesis 15:9, Luke 2:25. Go about gathering all the Simeons, especially Matthew 27:32 uh, and John 21:15 through 17, Genesis 34:25. And Genesis 42:24. When you have those, you have the beginnings of the Simeon prophecy, which we'll cover very soon, being a relative term. Okay, where am I now? All of the animals of Genesis 15:9, of all the animals, the only ones not divided, are the birds. The best translations of Genesis 15:10, in my opinion, emphasize the dividing of the animals. The dividing. They don't say cut down the middle. They don't say cut in two. They say dividing. The animals were, were divided. The birds were not divided. And I absolutely think that's exactly how it should be done. Note something. How did the, what did the Romans do? Did they cut the garments of Christ? No. They divided the garments of Christ. By lot, right? John 19.23 The two birds, Leviticus 14, are inherently attached to leprosy. The cleansing provision of the healed leper. Only Christ can proclaim that a person is cleansed. He's the only one that can what? Know it. Because you can't get all... How many cells are there? How many numbers are there in a human being? Who can pronounce you completely, totally clean? Who can count? Only an infinite count. So that's why it's Leviticus 14 is testifying of the blood of Christ that cleanses sins. Therefore, the undivided birds testify of Christ. Have I proven it yet? Probably not. Let's keep going. Christ is the Word of God. The Word of God is a person. John 1, 1 through 4. Again, Hebrews 4, 12. You have to know Hebrews 4, 12. I brought it up last time we were here. Hebrews 4, 12 is talking about a person. The Word of God is like a two-edged sword. That's what it's talking about him. Christ is like a two-edged sword. 
Christ is the two-edged sword. He's living and powerful. And he can divide the soul and spirit from the body and search the minds and the hearts of mankind. If, if he can search the intentions of mankind, he's searching the will of mankind. There's an important clue. So Christ is the great divider, the Aleph Tav. Remember, again, it's Melchizedek who told Abraham what to do in 15, 8 and 15, 9, right? Again, he also, the Aleph Tav, he also, Christ, that's Christ in both places, called himself Melchizedek. And he told Abraham to not, do not divide the two birds. So the Aleph Tav tells Abraham, do not divide the two birds. Melchizedek to repeat, described as the Aleph Tav, Hebrews 7, 3, 7, 6. He's pre-incarnate Christ. If the Aleph Tav says the birds are not to be divided, what can we decide from that? What can we deduce? What's, what, what logical path do we have here? He is truth and infinity. That is who Melchizedek, that is who Christ is. Don't divide the birds. Truth and infinity are telling you don't divide the birds. I'm, I'm saying to you the truth and infinity are being displayed here. The, the hypostatic union, therefore, because I have truth and infinity. I have these twos. So then that means that Mary, when she came at Luke uh, 2, 24, what did she bring? She brought two birds. Did you have any idea what it meant? I don't think so. She didn't marvel. So she brings infinity and truth as her offering. And you should know, you do know that the dove, Matthew 3.16, is a symbol of the Spirit of God and peace, Genesis 8.8.12, and resting, and the tree of life because of the olive branch, and innocence, Matthew 10.16. But fundamentally, that it is that which the dove is, that and the, and the, the turtle dove and the pigeon, if they are in fact the actual birds. We, don't, we know they're doves. At least. But, uh, so that's why I brought up doves. But fundamentally, they are de- declaring that which cannot be divided. The two birds were not divided because God told them, told Abraham, don't divide them. So if he told you, don't divide them, then can you divide the birds? You can't divide them. They're not dividable. It's impossible to divide the birds. So if they're not dividable, where am I at now? Because they are not dividable. There's no way in the world that Abraham could divide those birds, right? And that means that Melchizedek told him not to do it by inference. That means that Christ told Abraham, don't divide the birds. They cannot be divided. Let me say that again. They're not divided because they cannot be divided. Come up with a scenario where Abraham could have divided the birds. There's no possibility. Because who's he dealing with? Omniscient Aleph Tav. So the truth is constant and persistent. The truth is reality. You cannot divide the truth because he says, I'm the truth. Can you divide the truth? No. The truth, actually, that's the two-edged sword. The truth divides the reality from the in-reality or the non-reality, the unreality. And obviously, infinity cannot be divided. So here's your, here's your, here's your thing. Infinity divided by two equals what? Please answer infinity. Because you cannot divide infinity. And the birds cannot be divided. 
Infinity is immutable. It's sacrosanct. So here's... Terry, Terry got me ten pages back. Can the God-man be divided? Yes or no? Can we divide his humanity from his deity? Really? Haven't you gone to church? Where they say his in his humanity... The, the Aleph Tav could sin. Haven't you heard that? In his humanity, the Aleph Tav was unsure. He was scared. He was afraid that, oh, he didn't want to. In, in his humanity, he's a crybaby. Can the, can the Aleph Tav, can the God-man, can I divide God-man? I cannot. We see this wonderful uh, presentation, this, uh, again, this revealing in Exodus 21, 4 through 6, where the servant gets his ears, gets pierced, and he is forever the servant. He's forever the man. Jesus Christ is forever God-man. Forever. And that's what the two birds are doing. If you get the concept that the two birds cannot be divided, because they weren't Divided. They weren't divided. Did I spell weren't right? Is there another E in there? Yeah, there is. They weren't divided because they can't be divided. There is no possibility. Let me say it again. Think about it, all of you out there. You cannot come up with a possibility. Could Abraham have acted out on his own and just cut the bird? Because, oh, it's a mistake. I'm cutting these guys and here's a couple of birds on them. Divide them too? Oh, sorry. Could that have happened? It could not have happened. Uh Uh-oh, now are we getting into predestination? No. Because Abraham willfully obeyed. And you have to make him disobedient. And he wasn't. That's all I got for today.